Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Perhaps it was a morning very much, or, or well, an evening very much like this, in the middle of a holy place, a centre of religion, a place uh, of teaching and learning and understanding and living, where ancient books were read and reread and ancient liturgies were practised. A man was at this particular place talking about a strange story. He was taking the ancient spiritual stories of the nation and retelling them in new ways. He took the history of misuse of power, corruption of religious authorities, persecution of prophets and truth tellers, and weaved all of that into old national images of vineyards and servants. He took prophecies of saviours, messiahs and kings, security, foundation and judgment, and weaved them into understandable everyday tales. But they weren't just stories and tall tales. They were truths and realities shown in such simple ways that changed how people were seeing the world. That was the start of Luke 20. As he told, Jesus told the parable of the vineyard. And through all these parables he's been saying, perhaps for the hearers in the middle of oppressive Roman rule and rebelling religious zealots, there was a new kingdom. That while Caesar sat on the throne and Caiaphas was the high priest, there might be a new priest, a new king. Even though the poor were hard done by and the rich got richer and the weak was left to fend for themselves and the powerful grew more powerful, maybe there was a new kingdom. And though all these things could be achieved through the path of power and might, perhaps there could be a third way the path of the spirit, a new kingdom, a new king, a new economy, and a new politics, a new story. Can this be real? And on this Sunday evening on the 12th of September, with kind of the sunset through our windows and the air, the warm air blowing in, In the middle of your holy place in front of this camera, as you sit in the place of teaching and learning and understanding and living, where ancient books are read and re-read and ancient liturgies are practised, perhaps in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of exhaustion from obeying authorities, obeying lockdown and the desire for freedom, where health officials determine tomorrow and the week after, where sometimes the poor stay poor and the rich get richer and the weaker left to fend for themselves and the powerful seem to be unaffected. 
in the space of personal, relational, community, institutional injustice, we might desire for change through power and might. It might be hard to conceive that there could be another way. There could be another kingdom that is neither democratic or Marxist. Another king that is neither power-hungry or powerless. Another set of economics that is neither that neither favours a group nor leaves everyone lacking. And perhaps a different politics that is neither conservative or liberal. A kingdom that is freely shared. A king that is empathetically capable. An economic that is abundantly generous and a politics that is good for all. Can this be real? Can this become real? No doubt anyone would be suspicious about these claims. And all throughout the book of Luke, Jesus Jesus has been making these strange claims of a new kingdom, a new king, new economics and new politics. That is beautiful and dangerous, especially for those who were in charge of the current kingdom and who felt threatened. So verse 20, the spiritual leaders and the religious teachers kept a close eye on him and they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They wanted to send spies who pretended that they wanted to hear more about this kingdom. But instead, they hoped to catch Jesus in something, he said, so that he might hand, they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. You might be speaking authoritatively, Jesus, but if you say something politically incorrect, then off with your head. We'll set out to cancel you. And, and what better way to do that than to talk about politics. Now, when it's election time, some of my non-Christian friends and neighbours, knowing that I'm a Christian, will always ask, so Sam, who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to support? Are you conservative or liberal? What set of values do you vote for? Do you support this or do you support that? What's the clincher? What's the one issue, one policy that's going to sway your vote? Or do you vote on party lines? And Sam, What's the Christian vote? Now, I'm pretty sure my neighbours and friends aren't spies out to trap me, and I don't think their intentions are devious. Many of them just want to know how to vote and how Christians vote as well. But I think there's a kernel of testing in these questions. Can a Christian even be political? The spies brought a question to Jesus. Teacher... Verse 21, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Verse 22, so is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And to be honest, it is a wonderfully clever question. You can't get a better question than this. Because there's several aspects at play here. There's the financial aspect. They were, in chapter 20, in the temple in Jerusalem, the very place where money was offered to God. 
But they were also in Jerusalem, where taxes paid went directly to Rome, to the emperor. So the people of God was caught between offering their money away to the temple and to the state. If you only got limited income, if you pay both, then your income becomes less. There's a cultural aspect as well. Judea was under Roman occupation and the Judeans were tolerated to continue to live in their ways and worship their God as long as they followed, paid their patronage to Rome. So does paying taxes mean that Jews are supporting their oppressors? But then by not paying taxes, they endanger their existence. There's a religious aspect. The money in the temple was offered to God, but the taxes that were offered was to the rule of Tiberius Caesar, son of the first Roman emperor. Augustus Caesar, who at his death was consecrated as God, as a God, Augustus the Divine. Do the people of God offer money to Yahweh, their God, or do they offer their money to a son of a Roman God? Finally, there's a political aspect. Jesus, you you say that you speak and teach what is right. You don't show partiality. You're not influenced by flattery. And you've been speaking about a new kingdom, a new king, and a new economy, and a new politics under God. So tell us, Jesus, harbinger of newness, do we still follow this old kingdom, this old king, this old economy, and this old politics? Or should we be passionate rebels or mindless sheep? Do we love the society we're living in or deny the society that we're living in? Tell us, Jesus. It's a terribly clever question and at the same time, a terribly sly question because they weren't asking to ask how to live better or to know God more. It was a loaded question that demanded a black and white answer in a world That is not always black and white. And Jesus knew that. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Let's play heads and heads or tails. Heads. Whose, Whose image is inscribed on it? Caesar's, they replied. Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus's face. So verse 25, he said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. It's a mic drop moment, isn't it? On the one level, we could read that Jesus dodged the question and didn't get into the financial, cultural, or religious or political mess. He dodged being accused of being a rebel or being a religious traitor. He dodged that question that wasn't really a question to understand how to follow God, but to trap him. But on another level, Jesus didn't dodge the question at all. 
Even though the intention of the question was to trick him, he pries open the heart of the question. Do God's people get involved in society's affairs, knowing that society is not perfect? Do God's people pay taxes, knowing that taxes may fund avenues that may be unethical or unjust? Do God's people follow the authorities, even if parts of the law might not resemble God's justice? Do God's people play politics? And Jesus' answer peels back the veil hiding behind politics and the ordinary life of God's people. He says, politics is not evil. There is always a politic. The fact that we live in a world, in a society with other people, means that we have to figure out how to best live with each other and society. And that's politics. The question is not whether you're political, Your whole life is political. The question is, whose politics you live by? Before the lockdown, one thing I didn't like was bushwalking. And it might be an unpopular opinion uh, with people who live in the Blue Mountains like yourselves. I didn't like bushwalks because when I was young, my parents dragged me from one location to another with a promise of something great to see and it turned out to be less wonderful than they built it up to be. And so what I did with bushwalks as an adult is that I tried to get it over and done with as quickly and as painlessly as possible. Get from point A to point B with as little stopping, with my head down and uh, trying not to trip over. But then I'd miss out the sunset or a cloud pattern or the particular green-yellow of one plant, as opposed to the green-orange of another. And sometimes our lives can be like that as well. Not only do we stop to, we forget to stop and smell the roses, in our hurriedness getting to point A to point B, we can get so used to doing things the default way, of doing life like we've always been doing, From cradle to grave, we let the waters of life run along the same grooves that we've built over the years without question. If we've been brought up being conservative, we might run the grooves of conservatism. If we're a little left-leaning, we run the grooves of left-leaningness. If we're brought up political or apolitical, libertarian or authoritarian, religious or atheist, communal or individualist. Sometimes in our busyness, we never stop to question whether our politics are God's politics, whether our everyday is Christian. And sometimes being so caught up getting through this bushwalk of a life to get from point A to point B, we might even start to associate conservatism as Christian, or liberalism as Christian, or individual rights or capitalism as Christian. And we commit ourselves to these things and forget that we've already committed our lives to Jesus. Render unto Caesars what is Caesar's. Jesus affirms that in that statement, 
that there are authorities in our society. He affirms that we ought to give and provide and and contribute and submit ourselves to our leaders. But it doesn't deny that we live in a broken economy with unjust laws. It doesn't deny that our leaders are imperfect. But it also doesn't make authorities totally evil or totally good. Because he also says, render unto gods what is gods. That makes us realise that despite whoever and however many leaders there are, God is the ultimate ruler. All of God's world is God's. There isn't a square inch that isn't his. And so our commitment to our leaders should be under our total commitment to God. And when we look at Jesus's life, he lives it out, doesn't he? The very fact that he became a human being shows a politic. He entered the world for the purpose of benefiting society. If he didn't relate with humans at all, he wouldn't have been political. He submitted to authorities. Yet he contradicted social and political norms because his politics was not Roman or Judean, but he was God's politic. He had a name. I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. He wanted flourishing, but also knew that he's came not to save the righteous, but the but sinners. He's come to seek and save the lost. And the way he did it, the politics of his kingdom wasn't conducted through power grabbing, but by serving others. It wasn't done with mighty wars against culture, but spiritual battles with people's hearts to transform culture. It wasn't about ladder climbing, but climbing down to sacrifice. And it wasn't about gaining, but giving. It was a politic of other person centeredness. It was a politic of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we see the politics of Jesus on the cross, where his power was in giving it up, where his might is seen in being broken, where his majesty is seen in humiliation, and his gain and our gain is seen in loss. And the very politics of Jesus is central to our faith. We don't walk into the kingdom of God by doing more, but by giving up. We don't receive citizenship by being better, but acknowledging our brokenness. We don't become more like Jesus by becoming greater, but in humility. And we ultimately gain by losing. The political kingdom of God is the politics of Jesus and the politics of the cross. 
the blueprint of God's people in God's world is this politics. And that means us. In our lockdown, are we wanting to seek more control or lean into the chaos so that we can give to others in their chaos? Are we wanting to wage war for culture or are we ready to battle for people's hearts? Are we wanting to look better, look healthy, have a brave face? Or are we willing to sacrifice and be vulnerable so that in vulnerability we meet others in theirs? Are we about gaining? Or do we, in giving, receive? Jesus' answer reframes the question. You want to know who you want to know who you should pay taxes to? You want to know how to do politics? Well, you need to know who you worship. Because worship comes before politics. Do you worship Caesar? Then your politics would only concern Caesar. You would duly give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Do you only worship yourself? Then your politics will only concern yourself. And you'll be only asking questions to trap God and never to understand or relate with God. Do you worship God? Then your politics would concern God and God alone. And you would give unto God what is God's. Everything. Your Caesar, yourself, or God. Which of these three do you commit your life to? Because only one of them is the ultimate ruler of the universe. And only one of them gives life. Who you commit your life to determines how you relate with our society. Who you fall at the feet of determines how you do your taxes. Who you surrender to determines how you approach the law. Because worship doesn't replace politics. Worship produces politics. Stanley Hauvas, a theologian and ethicist, wrote that every theology produces a politic. Every theology produces a way of engaging with one another and seeing our society flourish. Jesus is not a political slogan, but a political example. In Jesus' life, death, resurrection and return, we see the very politics of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Spirit. We see the dawning and the presence of God's kingdom, God's king and God's economy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.